Hello and welcome to Just Law. Tonight we come together to listen to and take part in a conversation that is long overdue, necessary, and heartbreaking, but hopefully a start and maybe even transformative. The COVID-19 pandemic in tragic and violent ways has forced moments of recognition and realization of realities that exist in our society that we have for far too long tried to close our eyes to. The organization Stop AAPI Hate received 3,795 reports of incidents ranging from verbal harassment and shunning to civil rights violations to physical assaults, all from March 19th, 2020 to February 28th, 2021, all during the months of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is as New York City has seen a 1900% increase in hate crimes motivated by anti-Asian sentiment. And California has seen 1,226 self-reported acts of hate and discrimination against Asian Americans since the pandemic began. Tonight, we are joined by BC Law's Asian Pacific American Law Student Association, PALSA, leadership team and members to share their stories and talk about where we have been, where we are, and where we are going. This, conver this conversation comes as BC's Apulsa chapter joined with BU's Apulsa chapter to host an event titled, America's Anti-Asian Racism, Looking Back and Moving Forward, where such things as the model minority myth, the lack of awareness of the racism and the violence, the racial trauma, and the overall mental health of the Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islander community were discussed. Just Law wants to thank everyone for being here tonight and thank everyone for the strength and courage of speaking and sharing stories. With that, we proudly welcome BC's Apulsa team and start the conversation. Thank you so much, Kevin, for that introduction. That was lovely. Um, we're just going to go around real quick and just say our names and introduce ourselves. Um, so I'll start off. My name is Rosa Kim and I am the current Apulsa president. I am a 1.5 generation Korean, meaning that I was born in South Korea, but I immigrated to the U.S. with my family. Um, I came here when I was five years old and I've moved around a few times um, during my life in the U.S., but I would consider Houston, Texas my hometown. I've lived there the longest. Um, so yeah, next I'll pass it over to Connie. Yep. Hi everyone, um, I'm Connie Lee, I'm a 2L. I'm one of the vice presidents of internal affairs at Pulsa. Like Rosa, I'm a 1.5 generation Korean American. Um, I moved to the US with my parents when I was about one years old and I grew up in Texas. So that would definitely be one of my hometowns but I've been in Boston for over five years now. So it's starting to become one of my homes. Um, so I really appreciate um, the opportunity to speak today. So I'll pass it on to my friend, Joanne. Thanks, Connie. Um, hi, I'm Joanne. I'm a 1L and I'm from Taiwan. I'm a first-gen immigrant. 
So that means that I'm the first in my family to immigrate to the U.S. and I came here to the U.S. for college. Uh, I've started out in Berkeley in California and I've moved around the U.S. Uh, and I'm finally here in Boston. Um, I'm also very excited to share my stories and my perspectives and I'll pass it over to Zach. Thanks, Joanne. My name is Zach Lee. I am a 1L. Um, I'm a second generation Korean American. Um, my parents came here in the mid 70s. Um, my home for me would be Chatham, New Jersey, and I too am really excited to be here tonight. Um, I'm going to pass it to Laura. Hi, everyone. My name is Laura and I am a Postal's Community Chair. I am an international student from China and came to the U.S. for college. Very happy to be here today, and I will pass it to Yan. Hi, my name is Yan. Um, I'm a Pulsus Public Relations Chair. Um, I'm a 1.5 generation. I moved to the U.S. with my parents when I was about five years old. Um, we first moved to Alabama, which was a huge culture shock at first, but then we moved up to Boston, which again was also another culture shock, and Boston has been my home ever since. Okay, thanks, Yan. So I think um, I, I can get us started. Um, so APALSA has um, recently been doing a lot of work, important work to draw attention to uh, the Asian American experience um, at BC Law and beyond. Part of this work has been um, posting some student experiences on their Instagram page um, where, where BC Law APALSA members uh, could respond to particular prompts and those would get um, publicized and published. Um, one of those prompts, you know, it asked us to think what it means to be Asian. And um, for me, I have a story that I think really gets at the, 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 the essence of that experience for me. Um, so my aunt is a ski instructor in Idaho, very uh, interesting place. And I was visiting her um, a couple of years ago to, to um, snowboard the mountain that she works at. Um, she didn't want me to just be there alone. Um, and so she had one of her coworkers, uh, you know, give me a tour of the mountain for a whole day. This was a fellow um, instructor of hers, or, or I don't know if they knew each other, but um, <clears throat> he spent the whole day with me. He actually brought his, his son along. So it was us three. The, the mountain that she works at is called Sun Valley. And it's a really big mountain in Idaho. We, um, we spent the whole day just going down slopes of varying difficulties, you know, spending a lot of time on the lift together. Um, and, you know, by virtue of spending so much time with this one guy and his son, I, I felt like I got to know them very well. They asked me a lot about, you know, where, where I was from, what brought me to, to that sort of part of the world, that neck of the woods. Um, we talked a lot about baseball. We talked about um, <laughs> just, just basic things about being, being Americans. And, um, I, I thought I had a really good day. He, he told me at the end um, when it was time for me to, to head off the mountain and, you know, it was our last run that, um, you know, he really appreciated uh, having met me. And I felt the same way. I thought I had made a new friend. And um, at the end of the day, uh, on our last run, I'm, I'm going off the lift. I've unstrapped my bindings and I take my uh, reflective goggles off my face. Um, I've been wearing a pair of really reflective Oakley goggles the whole day. Um, so you can't actually see my face. Um, I take these goggles off my face and um, he, he looks at me and I, his face like notably, noticeably changed. And he goes, oh, I didn't know that you were Oriental this whole day. Um, 
<laughs> and he, he didn't say it with, with, with anything that I would consider malice. Right. It was just like, he was, it was more like he reflect his face was really reflective of this genuine surprise, this person that he was able to form a connection with, um, was it white or, or, you know, because I had spoke, I had spoken to him at length about, you know, things that I guess are part of like the, the, the normal American experience. And I don't have an accent. He just didn't, he couldn't fathom the fact that I wasn't white. Um, and I think that gets at the, the, the crux of the experience for me a lot of my life, um, at least pre COVID when it comes to being Asian, like, you know, you're different, but you're, you're always expected to assimilate, but no matter how well you're like able to, to keep that up, you're, you're never, you never really get there. Um, there's always like that, that sort of cruel reminder at, at certain points that like you, that, that white people and, and America in general will remind you that you'll, you'll never really quite get there. And um, that's a feeling that I've, that I've had like repeatedly, but you know, the, the story I just told was probably the most um, colorful, colorful illustration of that. Yeah, so I really resonate with what you said, Zach, um, especially on the assimilation part, because so when I moved to the US, I moved to Alabama. Um, I had been there for some like quite some time. And then around, I would say like the third-ish grade was when I moved up to Boston. Um, and at that time I had thought, you know, I'm pretty good at English. People seem to understand me. I honestly didn't feel that different from my peers until around fourth grade, I, so there are two incidences. Well, first in the second grade, Mrs. Jones paired me with students saying, oh, you probably need some help getting around the school and whatnot. You know, it's very like, okay, that makes sense. Like having a friend, but she paired me with a Korean girl. And when that happened, all my other classmates kind of like laughed a little bit when they saw that kind of pairing. And Cindy, who later became one of my really close friends, Initially, she really disliked me. Like she didn't really wanna be associated with me in any sense for some reason. Um, I think, you know, that kind of stuck with me. And then in the fourth grade, um, I still remember my fourth grade teacher's name because of this, but her name was Mrs. Carlson. I'm gonna put her on blast real quick. But here I was in the fourth grade reading like Sherlock Holmes, you know, like more conde condensed versions of it. Um, and we were all supposed to write journal entries based on what we had read. And I remember getting my first journal entry back and she just had crossed everything out and read. And at the very bottom, she was like, you need to see me. And when I went to go see her, she told me, I think you're very behind on your English. And I think you should be put in English second language classes. And that to me was really shocking as a fourth grader who had kind of been told nothing else except that like I could speak English well and whatnot and so then that kind of really stuck with me and still sticks with me today. I still hear Mrs. Carlson's voice all the time when I'm in law school classes or in any sort of competition or anything telling me like hey maybe you're not actually good enough maybe you're just a fraud um, and I don't know I feel like I've always overcompensated for what has happened since that time and that was also I think one of the more prominent moments where I realized I was really different. Like even in the classroom setting, I was literally pulled out of class, only me during like math time or whatever. And everyone saw me get escorted out into the hallway to a different classroom 
to do English second language classes where they gave me picture books to read. So yeah, I really resonate with that. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that too. Um, I think, so I think a bit about me, um, I am an international student and most people can't really tell when they speak to me, they just automatically assume I'm Asian American. And I just wanna put it out there that there are so many different types of Asians and um, being in a very homogenous community, like uh, unfortunately sometimes at a law school campus, it's hard to know who's what sort of Asian because there's so many different countries uh, within Asia, but we're all somehow lumped together and we're just all assumed to be the same. So um, like just looking at, um, I guess, Chinese students in general, there's mainland Chinese, there's Taiwanese, um, there's people from Hong Kong and there's people from Macau and that alone is just China, not to mention Korea, Japan, Vietnam and so many others. Um, but I think going back to your point, Yen, I think uh, just being in law school, I'm always like under this imposter syndrome. Uh, I always have that in the back of my mind. So I remember when I first kind of came to LP and I was just worried and I was so scared that people would find out that I wasn't actually American because then I would potentially be downgraded against my peers who had, you know, grown up in the system, who had been educated here, who would probably be more eloquent, be more coherent and more, I guess, um, a better writer in general than, than me. So I definitely feel like um, just this whole like lumping us all together um, and also just sort of this idea that, um, you know, we can't live up to um, our own expectations. That's really, that's really been a barrier um, that we probably impose on ourselves. Yeah, I think, um... I definitely resonate with everything you guys have said and just kind of this common thing that I just kind of see from all this is something that reminds me of just this constant tension kind of going back to what um, Zach said earlier about like what being Asian American means to me. Like I always kind of think of it as like, it's always like a tension between like me as a person, Connie, and then like me as an Asian American. And like, it's, it's also something I, I didn't really realize until much later as well. Cause like, as Joanne said, like, I think in school, there's always those stereotypes that are put on me or like, I always think about what someone sees before they talk to me um, or if they don't talk to me. Um, and I think being so conscious of that sometimes, like even just like me as Connie, like I think the consequences of that ends up forcing me to kind of distance myself from like, my my background my my culture my family's background and heritage and stuff like that and I think when I reflect on that when I was a kid I didn't really notice it because all I cared about was you know having friends and fitting in and like feeling I was good enough like um you know when people are surprised that I'm like good at sports like which is also kind of like a reflection of just those like stereotypes that are incredibly harmful like they'll tell me like Oh, I'm so surprised that you're good at XYZ or like, or that you're not good at XYZ. Um, like it's, it's that tension again, that's very much reminded. And like when I was a kid, those weren't so, that wasn't something that I was so conscious about, but you know, when I reflect on it, like I always kind of put down on myself and I really like just regret the amount of distance that I try to put between me and my identity in terms of, you know, my ethnicity and race. Um, you know, that's something that I'm still um, constantly working on, I think, um, just to catch myself when I find myself distancing 
myself because it is a huge part of my identity and I and I really am proud of it and I do want to be proud of it um so it's just something that I'm constantly working on too and just something that I'm becoming more conscious of that's definitely a difficult um thing to just live by especially because you know I grew up in a town where I was maybe when I grew up when I was a kid I was the only Asian family in my whole little town suburb so it's just kind of hard to really have those conversations with people and like not tell myself that it's you know maybe it's me you know so it's it's hard to kind of like it's it's just hard to cope with that after just such many long years of internalizing this stuff and you know I moved to Boston a completely different culture like I have um I meet such great people and I'm really just you know I've through this Apulsa group, we just met such great people who have similar backgrounds as me. And like, that was even such a shock to me that like people grew up in similar towns as me and experienced similar things. So that's um, definitely something that's still working on, but you know, that's constant tension that's still on my mind. Yeah, Connie, I think no matter like where, where you are in America as an Asian person, you're, there's always that sort of assumption that you're you're not quite American enough or like, you know, you're assumed to be foreign. And, you know, I think we all know that we're stereotyped and especially having like, I also grew up in a predominantly white town. Like, you know, when you grow up in a setting like that, like your first thought and your reaction to it is to think that being different is a bad thing. Cause that's, that's kind of all, you know. And um, I think that, you know, people know that they see, people, you know, that people see you in a certain way. And, you know, I instinctively sort of react negatively to that, even if like, there might be some truth to it, right? Even if like, you know, you are an Asian kid who is passionate for math and engineering and stuff, like, you know, the fact that you're proving this stereotype right or wrong is really always at the back of your mind. And it kind of like situates how you see yourself. And there's a lot of like work to do and unlearning and unpacking to do around, you know, why that is and how to sort of self-actualize in a more healthy way. Kind of going off of that, I think, you know, a lot of these stories revolve around like growing up and being in school and childhood. And I think a lot of the racism toward Asian Americans, it's so insidious, right? When, when I was a kid, I was told like, oh, you're so smart, you're a good student, you know? And I think that gives a lot of people this this kind of, I guess, notion that, you know, there is no racism against Asian Americans. And so it's easy for people to gaslight us because when I'm here feeling like, you know, people are very polite to me and extra polite, but then I see them interacting with someone who's not Asian and they're more relaxed or casual and they're joking with them, whereas they never joke with me. And so for me, it's like, oh, they're just extra polite to me because I'm Asian and they think that I'm this quiet, shy Asian girl. But how do you prove that to others? How do you prove that it's racism? And so it gives so much ground for people to be like, why are you complaining? These people are nice to you. What do you mean that they're being racist towards you? Because they don't even realize that they're being racist. So I think that just kind of feeds into this model, model minority myth where, you know, our teachers complimenting me because, you know, I'm a good student and I'm internalizing that. But at the same time, they only think I'm a good student because I'm a quiet, shy, obedient Asian girl. Um, so I think there's a lot of nuance there. And so it's just kind of like what Connie said, it's, it's more like, how do you, how do you know when someone is being racist, when you feel it, but you can't really express it. 
Yeah, definitely just a side note, not not necessarily a story, but I definitely resonate with you, um, Rosa, about the whole model minority uh, myth. And it's just it's just so hard because um, I guess I guess you're just expected to play a certain role within society. And once you step outside of that role, everyone looks at you as if this is not what you're supposed to be doing. So being Asian, there's this stereotype that you're antisocial that you know, you're just a hard worker, you put your head down, you do the work, you don't ask any questions, you don't complain, you just like, I guess, get work done. And that is like, that is like the extent of your role. And that's what people expect out of you. And I definitely remember when I first started working uh, after undergrad, I joined a professional services firm. And when I came on board, someone actually spoke to me and said, Oh, great, we need another sequel monkey. And SQL monkey just basically means like, you know, we code in SQL, it's a language, but then the idea there was just, okay, we just need another set of hands. We don't need you to like actually contribute any in any way. We just need someone to actually do the work. And the whole monkey term obviously is just offensive. First, I just wanna say that's horrible that you had to hear that. Um, I also think, yeah, just kind of going off of the whole mi model minority myth, um, I think it has been really problematic in ways that I don't even understand yet still. Um, I was listening to this podcast where this um, Asian woman was saying, I don't know how much of me is actually me and how much of who I am right now is actually just like pushing against all the stereotypes that exist about me. And I have to say, like, I felt that tension my entire life. Like, I am personally somebody who actually really did love math. But the way that it was pushed, like, even if I was good at it, or even if I was like, oh, this is super interesting, I felt like I couldn't pursue that path, because then I would just be another Asian girl who was interested in math. And that's how I felt about a lot of the things that I did. Like, um, I'm a classical musician, I play piano and violin, haha, -ha. whenever I say that, everybody laughs, because they're like, oh, that's so stereotypical, right? But I come from a line of people who love music. My mom was a musician. You know, she didn't go the traditional route. She's a composer. Um, she's done like so many things and her love for music and especially classical music came down to me as well. But no one knows that, right? No one cares to kind of unpack that or see that and see myself as like an individual who loves music and enjoys it. Rather, I'm good at violin because I'm Asian. I'm good at piano because I'm Asian. You know, those are, it's like, I always felt that tension and like, it makes it really difficult to kind of parse out for even myself right now, like how much, in a way, how much am I doing law school? Because I feel like this is a way for me to push back against stereotypes, but it is now a stereotype also to be an Asian in law school. And so all of these things I feel like are in constant tension with myself and trying to figure out who I really am, my identity, but also like celebrating who I am as a Korean American as well. I, I really resonate with what Yan said. Um, like I, I'm not a very extroverted person, and when I like don't go to the social events, like uh, I, I, sometimes I'm thinking, oh, it, it, like I, I feel that like people may think about me. Oh, she, she don't, uh, she, she doesn't like social because like she's Asian, and like it's kind of like taking out of some of my her personality out out, out of myself and. Yeah, that's yeah, and also I I I also have the same um feeling with Rosa about like um you you don't really know like what is racism and 
so, so, like sometimes I, I feel um like I um uh, sometimes I feel racism and I talk um about it with another Asian or international student. Um the most common um response that I got was um oh you, you think too much about it or um they 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 are not um like just just uh, like they, they made me feel like their response made me feel that it's me that thinking about too much like I'm not actually like discriminated against or something like that. Um and, and I think that's that's a very common response, not not just uh, about, uh, around me. I, I think like people just think that like Asians um, Asians are not doing good enough to earn the respect. Um, and I think um, that's um, something that we need to like change. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Laura. I think your feelings are completely valid. I mean, even now, you know, sometimes when I'm with a friend and another person approaches and they only address my non-Asian friend and they don't even look at me. And for me, it's like, oh, am I overthinking it or are they not talking to me because I'm just, you know, kind of like a background character. And so I think for me as well, I'm a little bit traumatized by this constant invalidation that I had growing up. And so it makes me afraid to even voice it. It, it makes me afraid to say to my friend, hey, is it just me or is it weird that they didn't even acknowledge my existence because that gives ground for whoever I'm with to be like, oh, you're overthinking it or like, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. Um, so I definitely know what you mean, Laura. And I think that is definitely a common thing among Asian people. Yeah, I think like with regards to like the Asian American experience, like, you know, we're, we're sort of conditioned to think of racism as this sort of outward sort of affirmative act of like, you know, there's, there's kind of this flavor of aggression to what racism means. Um, but racism is also the model minority myth. Racism is um, veiled backhanded compliments. You know, race, racism is like how this model minority myth devalues like individuals, reduces, um, reduces our achievements to something that like we reduces our achievements to expectations. Um, and I think that it's, it's, it's gaslighting on a systemic level. And some, some Asian people, even like, like, from, like my dad, for example, like they buy into it, you know, they say like, I got, you know, I got here because I worked harder. Like, you know, Asian people just have more, like they have better family structure, the culture that they come from is more conducive to success or something like they really buy into it. And um, I think that just because that there, there might be truth to like some of the, some of the, you know, some of the misleading sort of core tenets of like what the model, model minority myth will imply, like the fact that Asian Americans are successful in some metrics, right, relative to other uh, people of color in America, just because there's, there may be a little bit of truth to that, depending on how you slice it, doesn't make the stereotype itself true. People need to know that. Um, I, I also want to make a quick point about how it's anti-Black and how it prevents solidarity among groups of color by sort of doing this, doing this sort of positioning of, of Asian Americans opposite Black Americans in terms of like how these stereotypes create images of like the hardworking Asian and the lazy Black person. And I think that we need to keep in mind that Asian Americans are not racialized in a vacuum and that, you know, white supremacy um, operates in a way that wants to keep the status quo how it is. Um, 
And so this this sort of narrative around Asian Americans being a hardworking model minority is is something that is not meant is not and never was meant to be like praise about Asian Americans. There was always something more. I think you, Rosa used the word insidious about it, and I think that's a great word. Yeah, going off of that, um, I think in terms of like Asian American and like feeling racism and whatnot, like I think during COVID has been the most palpable in terms of direct harassment that I also have personally experienced um, during this time. And I also think, okay, I'm so sorry if I'm gonna get choked up about it, but it's been, weeks now, but I still get choked up thinking about what happened in Atlanta. Um, it's just, I think it was painful knowing that it happened, but it was also painful knowing how much people tried to make it not seem like what it was. And in a lot of ways, like when I started to freak out about it, like my mom, for instance, is somebody who works in a who works at H Mart, which is an Asian market. Um, the only image just going through my mind for three days, pretty much, as I was studying or doing law school to kind of like take my mind off of it, was somebody going in and shooting up the store because of everything that's happened with um, COVID and people just yeah, it was just that was the image going through my mind and having to deal with people telling me this was a random act or, you know, there were sex workers or whatever, trying to demonize these women who had lives, they had dreams, they had families, they had goals, you know, there was so much more than what the headlines stated. And also what was so frustrating to me was that I was exposed to Korean news that gave a lot of different reportings than what mainstream media gave, like, um, there were reports of the shooter actually saying like, I'm here to kill all Asian people something along those lines. And that was reported in the Korean news media in Atlanta at the time. And that was never, or I didn't see it at least. I don't think like, and whenever people would talk to me, I'd be like, well, this is what the Korean newspaper said. And they're like, well, that's not mainstream media. So it can't be right. Um, and I think that was really painful. And I, it's still it still sticks with me, I think, still, even right now. I think kind of going off of what you said, Yen, about the shooting, I think that was also, after, what followed afterward was also gaslighting. This was the perfect opportunity for people to talk about racism against Asian women specifically, because there's so much to unpack there the colonization, the fetishization of Asian women. It was just obviously a racial act and there was just so much to unpack there. And instead of unpacking all that and instead of addressing, you know, some news sources, they didn't even use the word Asian once or the word women. And I feel like after like a week or so, people just kind of moved on and kind of lumped that in with gun control topics and started talking about like all these other shootings that happened, which obviously were tragic but they kind of started moving on to talk about how we need gun control and gun reform, which is an important topic, of course. But I think it also, in a way, a lot of Asian Americans that I've talked to have felt very invalidated and very gaslighted because we never talked about 
we didn't really talk about the Asian women aspect of that shooting. We just kind of moved on to lump that in with gun control. And I think that's pretty, pretty, I don't know, it resembles a lot of the experiences that we just kind of face, um, maybe not on that national scale, but kind of on an everyday level. Something that um, also kind of reminds me of what you just said, just kind of representative of the experience was like, you know, when that happened, like, and I experienced a little bit of gaslighting, you know, after that, I was kind of like, oh, like, am I overreacting? Like, am I, you know, like, I'm, I'm very hurt. Am I the only one that's hurt? It's, it's a kind of like the self, like, again, internalizing this kind of thing. Like, you just suffer in pain, like, by yourself, like, in a corner. And you don't, don't know if anyone else is feeling the same way. And, like, a lot of my, um, well, people here so my best friends like but we were like texting we were like trying to comfort ourselves and you know stuff like that and like that was a huge source of comfort for me you know just knowing that you know I wasn't just gonna suffer in pain kind of thing but it's like uh suffer like kind of alone kind of situation um so like just something that kind of when you just say um that of things that just remind you of that whole general experience. It's kind of like, you feel like you're in a bubble sometimes because it's kind of like, again, hidden or it's just kind of portrayed as something else. Um, and you're just kind of forced to internalize it again. So it's, um, that's just another thing that, not so much a comment, but just kind of an observation, just kind of hopping off of what you said, Rosa. Yeah, and people, people tiptoe around it. I mean, even in the classroom, people say like, oh, let's take a moment to acknowledge this tragedy that happened, but it's like, call it what it is, call it racism, call it, you know, an act of racism and violence against Asian women. I think even in the classroom, people don't, I haven't really heard anyone say Asian or women. So it's like, call it what it is. Don't tiptoe around it. Asian American experiences shouldn't be taboo. You know, kind of to your earlier point of like how you felt ever since COVID, like, just a lot of those feelings that you feel after something happens to you, it's also kind of like, it's hard to kind of match those things and provide a reason for it, which kind of contributes to a lot of the confusion and a lot of like the hurt that you feel. And like, um, this isn't like as nearly as like, you know, as, you know, horrible I feel about the things that you had to experience, but, you know, going back to kind of COVID and the incidents in Atlanta and just, constant news about this violence that happens at, like ever since COVID and more. Um, I think that was really the first time I had like been fully scared and just conscious of me because of the fact that I was Asian and I look Asian to everybody else. And that was the first time I had really just kind of expressed my fear um, to my parents as well. Um, they run a restaurant in Texas and, you know, they have, they're, they're, they have a great relationship with people in our neighborhood, but I was still very scared. And like I myself, I was up here, I was scared to go to a grocery store <laughs> after COVID because, um, you know, you know, people are probably gonna think of me as like, um, I didn't know what people are gonna think of me, to be honest. And I was just so scared that something was gonna happen to me, especially after reading a lot of the news and especially after Atlanta, like I was so, I was just so caught on guard. Like every single time I was just walking out of my house, like, um, maybe I shouldn't walk out of my house. I was like constantly telling my parents, like, please be careful. Um, cause they can't avoid not going to work too. So it's kind of like, 
and they even noticed it too. That was the first time my mom kind of realized that I was expressing fear. Um, so I think it's, it's just like certain moments where, you know, you don't know how to really pinpoint it. Um, I think COVID in particular, I was more easily able to point it to just, you know, I am Asian people, like people look at me, I am Asian. Um, and that was like something that I could really point to as pointing to my fear and like sadness. Uh, but, you know, like as even, you know, with Yen, your story and just like certain other things too, like, you know, just any kind of experience really sometimes it's hard to kind of pinpoint that. And like, sometimes you just kind of get stuck into your head and it's, it just contributes to a lot of confusion and sadness. And, you know, it's, it's really, unfortunately, I don't really know what is the solution to it and like how to make it better. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. So thanks so much for sharing Connie and Yen. Um, I definitely think I actually had an experience as well, um, actually right when COVID started, I was in New York and I remember it was a dark night. I got off work late. I was walking home to take the subway. And I remember I was walking through a tunnel and there was actually a um, homeless person um, sitting there asking for money. And when I just walked by and I didn't do, I didn't give him money because I was also kind of scared because it was just me in a very narrow tunnel and, and him. Um, I was getting scared because he asked me for money and I didn't give it to him. And at the end, when I walked by, he said, um, well, I don't want your nasty beep money anyway, go back to China. Right. And that was right when COVID started. And I was, I was so shocked because like, I, I didn't know he would know. And also just the sort of treatment I, I it was my first time getting, I guess, I guess harassed in that sense. So it was very shocking to me and I was pretty upset about it for like, I guess a couple of days. Um, but I also wanted to, I guess, throw out a point about just COVID and, um, and I guess the Asian reaction to it, because I feel like for a lot of Asians, we actually lived through SARS back in 2002, 2003, 2004. And SARS was mostly an Asian event. It happened in like China, Vietnam, and Hong Kong. And so like having this experience, having been through an outbreak like this, like SARS, um, all those years ago, I feel like a lot of Asians are very scared about COVID. And I feel like it's just blatantly unfair how we've been treated, especially when I guess we're looked at as the source and we're seen as, I don't know, unclean or dirty. Um, but in fact, I feel like a lot of Asians take extreme precautions um, for COVID, right? So like, I, I know so many stories and myself included, like for example, when we go get groceries, the first thing we do is maybe quarantine the food or we like Clorox everything we touch from outside. We bring, you know, like we probably, I, I do this, I Clorox the ends of my, the soles of my shoes as well um and then like I like wash all my clothes by hand so I don't use the communal laundry like things like that right like we go to these extremes just to keep ourselves safe keep everyone around us safe like I was we were wearing masks like way before COVID became a thing um it's in our culture to do so and I think it's definitely a we, we just have this culture of taking care of everyone around us and so to be pointed at and kind of blamed at um and also just Kind of being treated this way is just i think unfair and just, it doesn't make sense to me thanks for sharing joanne i i, I want to relate to you because covid um and this pandemic was actually the first time that i like experienced a really overt like aggressive act of racism against me for being asian too like i've i like i said before there have been sort of reminders and people have 
sort of like thrown thrown racist things at me as jokes or or you know all all in good fun right um but i think covid has really made anti-asian racism and anti-asian racists like more emboldened like um like you i also take extensive precautions around you know containing covid and socially distancing and wearing masks and being responsible but um in my in my apartment building there's a parking lot out back and there's there's no back door so i have to walk along the sidewalk to get into my building through the front door and it's probably about 30 feet of sidewalk um and typically you know i i'll wear a mask when i get up as soon as i get out the car and when i go into the front door but for one day um i didn't have my mask on i figured it was a pretty short walk it's a walk i do multiple times every day when I was going to my front door, uh, a man is walking on, he's walking towards me on the sidewalk. And as I, as I pass him by on the sidewalk, I'm holding my um, nose and my face down, trying like, just let him know that I'm, I'm not trying to give him anything as he's crossing on the other side of the sidewalk. And then he goes, as he, as he is already behind me, he tells me, you know, you need to put a fucking mask on, you chink. And that's the first time in my life that I've ever been called something like that. Um, and one, you know, I, I didn't really feel like a really visceral reaction to it at the time, but one emotion that I didn't expect to feel that I ended up feeling was like strangely um, alone. Um, you know, I called my dad about it um, and he told me like that it was really sad that, you know, people are, are saying these things again because he got called things like that all the time growing up, but he was telling me how, you know, recently um, as, as he had gotten older, like people seemed to have known better and that like he was very uh, proud in a sense that like I had never had to deal with any of that. So it, it was, it made him very um, disheartened as well. But I didn't feel like if I told most people that they would care, like, and I think that like, that's something that I've probably internalized, right? But it's something that I think Asian, like, that these all these um, swirling narratives around, you know, Asian Americans being, you know, stoic, Asian Americans being sort of the bootstrappers, like it, it all contributes to this feeling that like, you know, your your trauma and your struggles and the feelings you feel um, are, are, are not real problems. It's something that, you know, you as an Asian person, like we're sort of like, you know, you are expected to overcome it because you are Asian. Um, and it, it really made me feel like I couldn't talk to many people aside from, you know, the, the close friends who, who I, who, who I confide in, but, you know, this is not an experience that I would share and expect to get a reaction, um, or, or sympathy from. And I think that that's kind of the product of a lot of complicated, uh, things that I've, I've, I've come to learn from being Asian in America. Yeah, I, I have the same feeling that the COVID seems to give um, the racist um, like more comfort, like they, they feel more comfortable to express racist comments or slurs. And that's pretty upsetting for me because it, it made me realize that um, the, like the situation is like is much worse than I have thought. and. Yeah, like that's just very upsetting. My parents were also getting information about COVID ahead of time. And I think the thing that I realized through this entire process, despite how scary and how awful it can feel 
being Asian, it also has made me realize like the collectivist values that my parents have instilled in me are extremely valuable. Like, I think the reason why like I'm personally taking COVID precautions so seriously is because I wanna protect other people. And I think having these collectivist values is something that has really helped me channel my own empathy and like understanding how to feel for others and think about others and the consequences of my own actions. And I think it's been something that I've been really proud of despite like some of the not necessarily the push, uh, some of the pushback maybe some people might have of being like, well, why do I have to wear a mask and all of that kind of conversation. But at the end of it, I know for myself that I am proud to be, you know, I'm proud to be Korean. I'm proud to be also American. I'm proud to be Korean American. And this, this time has really helped solidify that, I think, especially from seeing how, like the fact that the way that we take precautions, the way that we try to take care of our community, I think it shows great love for the Boston community. Like my parents love Boston, you know, they're not from Boston, but they love it. And right now they're trying to do everything they can to make sure they don't spread COVID to prevent that, this, you know, an outbreak or anything like that. And so I think in that sense, um, despite how scary and alone it can feel at times, it also helps me feel connected knowing that there are other people in our Asian community really trying to kind of protect and foster our community here, if that makes sense. I kind of wanted to run along, take take what you said, Yana, and just kind of run along with that and that, you know, I don't, I clearly don't want to, you know, take away from some of the horrible incidents that have happened to people. But I think like sometimes um, when I share these stories or when I point to certain things or try to attempt to call things out or stand up for myself sometimes, you know, like I just want to say like, I'm doing that out of, out of like not hatred or like anger or like sadness or anything like that. It's, it's because I want to have these conversations with you and I want to build that relationship with you kind of thing, you know, like the, one of the reasons why I thought this podcast would be such a good idea and like wanted to be part of it and hear from the stories that we've heard today, especially like, it's cause like, it is a bridge to the things that I wanna talk about, you know, like it's it's what's supposed to be about, like it's just building that relationship more, you know? And it's like, um, if it's, it's if, I, if I call someone out, you know, for saying something to me, you know, it's, it's not because I'm gonna be angry at you or anything like that. It's because it's, it's coming out of a place where like, I, I wanna talk about difficult things with my community and with my peers and my friends. Like, I want you to ask me about these things. Um, it's it's supposed to be a starter. It's not supposed to, you know, kind of be a place out of anger or anything like that. Um, it's I, I it's a very long way of just saying, like, I, <laughs> I, I wanna share these stories with people because I think it's, a, it's coming out of a place where I wanna build stronger relationships and have these conversations with people. And like, likewise, like I wanna hear people stories with identities that are completely different from mine as well um so it's 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 really coming out of a good place at least from 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 where I experience it yeah I think if anything this conversation and just everything that's been happening has definitely 
given way to a stronger community. And I think there's a lot of learning to do, you know, by all of us. I think even a lot of Asian Americans, they're learning too and unlearning. Like for me, um, I think a lot of stories that we've shared today kind of talk about, you know, the shame that we felt growing up trying to hide our Asianness. But I think a lot of us are getting to the point where, you know, we're so proud. We're so proud to be Asian. We're so proud to be our individual ethnicities and have our own identities. And one thing, one event that like, I will never forget for the rest of my life is, you know, one time when I was in high school, um, my mom, she's, like I said, I moved to the US when I was five and my mom immigrated with me and she was older and she has an accent. And she came with me to a high school registration desk to like kind of figure out my registration. And she said something to the receptionist. It made sense to me, like looking back, her English was fine, like everything made sense, but the receptionist just couldn't understand what she was saying. And so, and she was very rude to my mom. She was like, what are you trying to say? Like, can you repeat that? And my mom was very flustered and she was struggling to speak and rephrase things. And, you know, her face was turning red and she kind of looked to me for help. And sorry, I'm getting choked up, but, you know, instead of helping her, I, I looked down and I pretended that I didn't know what was going on between them because I was so ashamed of my mom. But looking back now, like the only person I'm ashamed of is myself for feeling that way. And, you know, now if anyone tried to speak to my mom that way, like, you know, but I think now we're all at a place where we're just so proud. There's nothing about me that's ashamed of my Asian identity or my Koreanness or my family or my culture or my background. And I'm so grateful to have gotten to that point. And I think it is because of so many other people and being around this community where it's very supportive. And I think this isolation that we all felt growing up, um, it's, it's starting to kind of dissipate, which is good. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Rosa. Like, you know, the first time that you know, I lived in Korea for a couple of years in middle school and, you know, that time being around people who looked like me and had similar experiences and I was no longer sort of the odd one out like was really where I started to make that that transition to where you know I, I'm very proud to have made that where I'm at today where I see being Korean as you know my greatest privilege you know being able to be Korean being able to visit Korea see my Korean family and hear about their their immigration history you know having the best food in the world um, I love like even, even like, you know, some of the trepidation that comes with being a pe person of color at large in America. Like I love being able to prove, prove people wrong and be, being able to surprise people and, and have my own interests and be, be much, much more uh, secure in that than I was before. You know, that despite the fact that, you know, people may see me a certain way that people may, you know, assume certain things about me, like it no longer phases me that, you know, I, you know, that, that I am no longer, um, you know, going to be defined by them. This is, this is my story. And um, I think that a lot of folks who we've heard from today must feel the same way. Yeah, um, just going off that real quick. Um, I moved back and forth between Korea and the US a total of six times. And basically, I lived half of my life in Korea and maybe half of my life in the US. But, you know, I was also fortunate enough to be brought up in an environment where I was surrounded by a lot of Koreans, a lot of people who looked similar to me. And so to me, um, you know, establishing this identity as a Korean has 
never been something that I distance myself from. Um, I love being Korean. I've always loved being Korean. And yeah, just like being Korean for me has never been something I, you know, um, wanted to hide away from. And I'm very proud to um, share my Korean background and share my Korean experience. And I guess something similar along the lines of what Connie was saying, um, you know, ask, like, if you want to know more about me as a person, like my background, just be curious. And I appreciate friends who are willing to just ask about my background and, you know, know more about like my own personal experience and my own, um, you know, unique upbringing as well. And so um, it doesn't need to be um it doesn't always have to be like a tiptoeing situation it you know it's always just about being present and always wanting to be genuinely curious about who you are as an individual and I think that's something that um I would you know want from others you know whenever I'm you know in Boston as well so yeah um thanks Stephen I 100% agree with you um but i feel like as one of the non-koreans people non-korean people on this call i definitely need to fight you guys on the food <laughs> i was so triggered when you all brought it up um but yeah if, like if you ever if you ever go to taiwan i would say like the food there is amazing it's cheap it's good um definitely recommend um i also just kind of want to briefly say something about just my identity as well so um i'm a first-gen immigrant i'm also the first person in my family to go to college um so Looking back, I'm, I'm pretty proud of who I am and who I've become. Um, I remember when I first came to the US, I was 17. I didn't have a social security number. I didn't couldn't even open a bank account. I literally just had a wad of cash. And it was like one of those immigrant stories where you hear about people who come to the US with like $20. Um, I had more than $20, but my point was it's very similar um, because I remember like having to go through these struggles and not just experiencing um, uh, I guess societal racism, but also sort of structural um, barriers as well, not just trying to get a bank account, trying to navigate my way through the whole immigration process here. Um, I also just wanted to, I guess, let people know that when COVID hit, um, there were a lot of international students who were stuck back at home, who couldn't get a visa appointment or go to their local embassy, US embassy to get the appropriate student visa to be in the US. And this was a struggle because a lot of embassies were closed and it was just so stressful this year trying to get into law school, trying to be in person and in class. Um, I remember like my first day in class, I felt like I had you know, succeeded because it was an enormous accomplishment to you know, fly back home from the US to Taiwan and then also get my visa have to go through all the procedural pr procedures. And then at that time, Trump had also issued a ban on international students because, you know, if we weren't fully in person, why do you need to be in the US in the first place? So there were there was a lot of visa changes at that time and it was very stressful. So having gone through all of that and having like finally flown to the US, despite, you know, my own fears of COVID, it was such an accomplishment to me to actually just you know be in the class in person on the very first day of law school, um, and then you know I just definitely am very proud of where I am now, and yeah, um, it's been a it's been a wild ride. So Joanne, I really well except for the Taiwan part, I've never been to Taiwan, so I can't say anything about the food. But <laughs> I will say, like for me personally, I grew up in a 
for most of my life in America. However, I've always found Korean communities. And from that, I've always been really proud to be Korean. Um, and I think because of that, um, I think as a child, I didn't really like hearing questions of people being like, oh, where are you from? Because not only did they ask me, again, this is like lumping us all together at the same time, right? Because I always got asked I was Chinese. There's nothing wrong with being Chinese, but I'm like, I, but I'm Korean, right? Again, I've always been so proud of being Korean. And when I say I'm Korean, a lot of people would be like, where's that? What is that? What are you then? You know, and that made me feel very alienated. And so I think like kind of talking about this, like I think it's really good to be curious and ask questions and to understand um, where your Asian friends are coming from or what their experiences are. I think their stories are really valuable. However, like there are ways, there are certain things to kind of avoid, you know, like I don't, when people ask me, where am I from? I don't even know how to answer that anymore, right? Cause like, even though I was born in Korea and I did move to the US, like I feel American, you know, and I feel Korean and American. And so like when people ask me that question, it makes me feel very otherized. It like kind of makes me feel like I'll never be accepted fully for who I am. Um, and so like questions like that or like, and we're talking about food and I love food obviously, and I love Korean food. Um, but also like, you know, whenever I'm in a restaurant that is Asian, I don't speak Chinese, but I still remember some friends being like, you should order for us. And I would sit there being like, I don't even know what this is. And so there are these like little interactions that kind of can undercut um, and make your Asian friend might feel like a little bit uncomfortable speaking up. Like I never said anything when my friend said that because then I felt like I would in a way disappointing them or whatever. And like, even though I didn't know any Chinese can't read the menu type of thing. And I ordered something, I had no idea what it was. I thought it was chicken, but it wasn't. And then when I ate it, I was like, I have no idea what I just gave everyone. But yeah, no, just, I think like our experiences are super nuanced. And so when approaching that conversation, I think there are ways to do it that leads to a more conducive environment of sharing. And I think one way to solve that is just to, you know, educate yourself, like listen to what Asian Americans have to say, listen to why it's not okay to ask where are you from and et cetera. And I think we've been doing a great job with our, you know, Instagram story series that we've been doing where it's like you educate yourself by, you know, reading up on our experiences. And so I think that's a good way to learn, you know, what are appropriate questions um, so that you can engage in our conversation and make space for us without, you know, making us feel other or being racist even un un unintentionally. Yeah, and you know, I feel like in just in my personal experience, a lot of this stuff even just comes out organically just by getting to know me as a person. Like, I know like when the people before me like were speaking about how proud they were um, of, you know, being Korean, being, um, you know, like the backgrounds in their families, like for me personally, like my family is Korean, but a lot of times like, I grew up kind of thinking and sometimes still do like regrettably like um you know I feel terrible admitting this now like that I grew up so many times like much of my life like I grew up like very much kind of seeking permission from my friends or who weren't Asian to be able to share with them like 
you know, aspect of my culture, like the food that I love, you know, just like the background of my family, like where we're from, like I, I kind of needed to feel like my friends were okay with it or like were okay with me and like my like Asian identity to be able to share that. And like, for me, like, I hate that I felt that way because it's like, what's wrong with that? Like, <laughs> it is who I am and I, and I really do love it. And I wanted to share it. It's not that I, it's not that I didn't love that part of me. Like I really wanted to share that. And I, and I wanted, um, I wanted that to really like not be hidden as part of my identity, but that was something that I did feel like I needed permission to share, but like, you know, my friends who made me feel the most comfortable and where a lot of that, a lot of those conversations that um, Rosa, you were pointing to before really came out was just like very organic, like just talking about our families in general, just like talking about me, like what you like to do, like, where did you grow up? Like, you know, tell me about like a fun time. Tell me about a time that made you really sad. Like, you know, and just being like a listening ear was just like so helpful. So, you know, it, it sometimes just is very organic, but it's, it's, it is like the little things that you said, yeah. And it's just like the very little things really matter. And that goes for anyone. Um, so kind of going off of all of that, I guess something that I wanted to share personally, again, I am really proud to be Korean and my name I kept for a reason because it is so I didn't want to become an American citizen because I felt so American that if I gave up my Korean citizenship, then I was giving up the Korean part of me. But then I became an American citizen and I was asked, hey, do you want to change your name to something that makes more sense to Americans? <laughs> um, and so when I was asked that question, you know, even my parents kind of thought about it too, because they thought about like how my name ha might have like held me back, right? But I'm so incredibly proud of my name. And yes, I do condense it to Yen, so it's more easy for everyone to say. And so, I mean, the correct way in Korean is Yen. And so this sounds sort of similar, not really, but at least not to me, but um, I'm okay with it. But I think the reason why I didn't change my name was because I'm so proud of the meaning that it was given, like the meaning that it has. So my grandmother, she's a very religious person. She had this dream before I was born. And it was this rock in this really pure water. Um, and so for her, when she woke up, the meaning that she wanted me to have a name that kind of resembled this purity and faith. Um, and so she picked a name, Yen is actually really popular in Korea, especially for people born in 93 to 95, uh, especially in the Christian community in Korea. Um, but with my name altogether, right? Sung means castle. And then yin means using, using your talents to glorify God. And so as somebody who is also, I'm a Protestant, um, I'm a firm believer. Um, my faith has really carried me through some of the darkest times in my life. And so to have a name that was given to me by my grandmother and has this immense meaning and to my own identity as a Christian, but also like the fact that it was a Korean name was something that I just like never wanted to give up. And so just kind of wanted to share that in terms of like sometimes we look at names and we don't know the stories behind them right like everyone is given a name there's a meaning behind it and so and we don't always get to share these types of stories so that was something that i wanted to share yeah thank you for sharing um so i i also have a this is joanne is actually my uh 
Chinese name, it's what's on my passport. And I also made the conscious decision to not adopt an English name. I mean, Joanne is like very similar to an English name anyway. Um, and I guess to kind of do the whole background thing like Yen did, um, my parents, I guess it's common in Taiwan and China, like my parents, you know, they go to a fortune teller, they look at the date you're born, that fortune teller will say, this is the number of Chinese strokes that would be lucky for the day that you're born. Um, and then so they pick certain characters based on like, okay, these are these are these number of strokes is what would be lucky for your kid. Um, but in terms of what my name means, so Joanne, so Joe means gentle and Anne means peaceful. Um, so yeah, that's my name. Can I go? Okay, I'm gonna go. Um, so my my name is Zach. I go I go by my uh, American name, but my Korean name, my middle name is uh, Chung Sun. And um, you know, for a while actually, like even even as recently as as one out year, um, on my resume, I wouldn't put Chung Sun. I would just put um, J, like the the initial, um, because I thought that it would like you know, Zachary Lee is like a, a ambiguous enough name that like people may not um, fully realize that they are, they are seeing the application of an Asian person. And I thought um, in some perverse way that that would help me, but I recently stopped doing that um, after, you know, part of what uh, inspired me to stop doing that was conversations with, you know, friends and, and, and thinking a little bit more critically about my Korean identity. Um, Jongsan was given to me by my grandfather, my Haraboji, and I, even though I can't speak Korean, and that's a, a big regret of mine, I feel like this is sort of one of the most immediate and personal things, one of the most personal connections I have to my Korean side. You know, he's no longer here, and it's a constant reminder that I never want to forget of um, the, the, the people on whose shoulders I stand, and so that's, that's kind of what my name means to me. Okay, um, I, so I go by Laura. My Chinese name is Xiang Yue. And I, I am wondering if that's the most difficult Chinese name for English speaker to pronounce. Yeah, but actually for the first two years of my college, I, I went by Xiang Yue. But it, it's like it turns out um, few um, English speakers or, or at least the students I have met like few of them would really try to pronounce that. So, um, and, and then I transferred to another school. And so I, I chose Laura and yeah, I, I, I so I really um, feel that um, sometimes it, I, I have to um, make some compromise, but I also think that um, my name is not the only thing that I can show my identity. Um, so um, going back to the meaning of my name, uh, I, 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 although I, um, I am from Guangdong province in China, uh, my parents are from Hunan province. So the shorthand, so Xiang is a shorthand name for Hunan province and Yue um, means a pearl. Uh, I, I know Yue is the same um, pronunciation of um, the Chinese character uh, moon, but um, it, it's a different character. So you mean pearl. Similar to Zach, I, I kept my Korean name um, as my middle name. And so, as you can tell, it's Stephen S. Song. But um, my middle name is um, Sung Hoon. 
Um, and Sung by itself means bridge or yeah, bridge and Hun means um, to teach. And so I guess, um, I think my grandpa named me, I'm not really sure. I, I should have checked that before I spoke about this, but um, you know, whoever, <laughs> one of my family members named me and I think they wanted to instill this idea of me becoming someone who continues to like teach others and bridge others together through teaching. And, um, you know, that is something that I hopefully can continue to do as I you know, grow older as well. And so I really am proud of my Korean name. Thanks, Stephen. What a beautiful name. So my Korean name is Kyungmin. And like Joanne said, um, the tradition of like going to a fortune teller and like kind of looking at like your destiny and what is lucky and whatnot. So I was actually given two name options and um, I don't know, my Korean name is even more special to me, I think, because um, given these options, you know, my grandma, my mom and my dad were kind of trying to choose which name to give me. And ultimately it was my dad who chose my name um, because he thought that it sounded more well-balanced. And I think that's, you know, chi and balance and everything is very special in our culture. And so um, to me, it gives it extra meaning that he kind of thought that it was a more balanced, steady name. Um, so Kyung means something bright and shining and Min is like a precious gemstone. So that's, that's my name. And, um, you know, I, I wrote a whole impact blog article on this that I'm sure people have read already. But in that article, I talk about, you know, a lot of shame in my name growing up and people not being able to pronounce it. And Rosa is actually my baptism name. And it was, it's obviously more easier to say um, in English. And so I went with Rosa, but that also faced a lot of backlash where people are like, oh, are you Mexican, you know? <laughs> so, um, but um, long story short, summary of my article, I asked my parents to change my name to Rosa legally because I was tired of, you know, school rosters messing it up. And my dad um, changed it to my middle name, which at the time I, was kind of horrified. I was like, I don't want Kyungmin to be any part of my name. And he he was very firm about it. He was like, that is your name. It's going to be a middle name. And I think at the time I was just like, okay, fine. But looking back now, I am so happy that it's still a part of my name. Um, and I think, you know, I didn't realize it at the time because he only told me later that he's the one who kind of had a heavy hand in deciding what my name is. But looking back now, I'm just so glad that he kept that in there. Um, it's just very special to me. Last but not least, um, I'll uh, I'll talk about both my <laughs> both Connie and my Korean name because I have stories behind both of those. But um, so I guess I'll start with my Korean name, which is Sohyun. Um, and so I don't know what the individual figures mean, and I know that my dad researched this like from the day he knew that I was going to be born. He like spent the whole time researching with my grandfather what he wanted to name me. And um, so if he watches this video, he's gonna be like, "No, you got it wrong. It means this." But this is how I interpret it. <laughs> um, it basically means like um, there's a really like there's a really clear body of water when you like, let's say look at it from a mountain, you can see like the water, like it's crystal clear, uh, but you can also see all the way down and see like close to kind of how deep it is. So it's just like, like a really clear body of water that's also deep. 
and um, just the complexity um, as just kind of symbolically is like what he was kind of going for. Um, and he, he also like listed apparently like multiple names and he brought them to my grandfather and he was like, no, 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 this one. <laughs> um, so it definitely means a lot. Um, but yeah, I, uh, but I've never gone by that like ever in my life, actually. Um, even when I was like really, really young, like almost like one years old, I've always gone by Connie because um, before I was born, actually, my uncle was going to school in California and no one could pronounce his name. And so he like kind of wanted to protect me after just the feelings that he got at school. And so he um, he told my mom, like, oh, if like, you're going to move to the U.S., like you should give her a different name because like people are going to have a really hard time pronouncing Selyan. And so he chose Connie out of the blue. I don't know why, really. It's supposed to be short for like a princess named Consuela or Constanzi or something like that. And he just thought it was very cute and unique, unlike a lot of the names that he has seen before. I think at the time, like, you know, Ashley, Sarah, stuff like that was very popular. So he just brought it to my mom. My mom heard the word princess and was like, okay, we're gonna do it. <laughs> um, so I've always really gone by Connie. But um, I, the reason why I have a story behind that was because when I was growing up, though, um, I had a, there are a few um, there. I had some friends like named Ashley. There were like two or three of them like every year when we were in elementary school and they would all get like matching necklaces that had like Ashley on it. And like it was like an automatic friend group, you know. And like everyone had the same, there were two Sarahs, two Carolines, like, but I was the only one named Connie and I would always meet people like <laughs> the only Connie's I would meet would be like my friend's grandmothers and they'd be like, oh, my grandma's name is Connie. <laughs> When I was like eight, I never thought that was cool. Like I wanted someone to get like a matching necklace with. So um, I like asked my dad if I could like change my name again to like Ashley or something. Cause like Connie wasn't on my birth certificate <laughs> at the time. Um, I laugh about this because I'm just like, why am I just like a crazy little girl? Um, but, <laughs> but now I think about it, I love both names. I love Connie because like, you know, um, it's not, I've never met another Connie in my life other than, you know, my friend's grandmothers. <laughs> but no, I love it. Um, it's, it's still me. Uh, someone asked me, someone asked me actually like, you know, if people could pronounce the Korean name, um, would you go by it? And I was like, you know, in some ways, like, I really appreciate it, but at the same time, like since I've just gone by Connie since day day one, almost like my whole life, I've kind of built an identity around that as well. But well, you know, like, like Rosa said, I'm I'm glad that I've still kept my Korean name a part of me, um, especially knowing how much thought my dad put into it. So, uh, yeah, I love my name. What a wholesome note to end on! Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's really uh, that's pretty perfect. I have to say, it's uh, this whole this whole conversation. Um, I I just have to say thank you, you know, and thank you for being here, and thank you for sharing everything that you've said for sharing parts of who you are, and may we embody your strength and your courage. And may we learn, and may we realize, and may we recognize all the things 
that some of us never need to think about, never have thought about, never have encountered. And yet, may we also realize that this is and needs to be the start. We have to do better, we can do better, we must do better. And thank you for leading the way and showing us how to get there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Just Law. And let's keep going. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men 